to everyone and welcome to the Hilliard Beacon Audio Companion Election Special Edition Number Two. I am Jordan Smith, uh, your humble host, and I'm joined as usual to my left by. Hi, I'm Tim. And to my right by Kevin Corvo. Wonderful. Hi. Straight ahead, I am uh, looking at a candidate for school board this year in the person of Kelly Arnold. Kelly, welcome yourself to our program. Well, hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank oh. you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the second of our special election episodes. We are trying to make sure that the people of Hilliard, or at least the ones that are wise enough and judicious enough to select to listen to Hilliard Beacon Audio Companions, get to hear uh, at extended length from the candidates seeking local office this year. Uh, last week we had in Les Carrier seeking a township trustee position this year. This week we have in candidate for Hilliard City School Board, Kelly Arnold. And I am going to throw it over to Tim just briefly. Uh, to talk through some of our goals and some of our interview uh, guidelines that we've come up with to help aid us in this process. Tim, take us through it. All right, so the purpose of these interviews is just to sit down and have um, a non-time-constrained, open-ended conversation with candidates so we can hit the things that you want to talk about, uh, and you can go on at length about um, what matters and is important to you. We also have uh, questions that we're bringing to most of the candidates or all of the candidates that come through. Uh, many of them are focused around the new Hilliard community plan. Um, Jordan and I, in a separate project, are digging into that and getting in, getting into the weeds and trying to deeply understand that. So we want to uh, find out from you what you like about it, what you think might need tweaking or work, um, you know, concerns and, and the things you really like. Um, and the goal is to uh, make sure every candidate has a chance to come and say their piece um, and to do so in as transparent and neutral a way as we are able to, which I think we are doing an okay job so far. Excellent opportunity to, to meet with the folks via audio. Exactly. So thank you again for coming. Um, and that is all I have to say about that. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, buddy. I do appreciate it. Kevin, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to throw to you right away and just ask you to get involved immediately, as that was <laughs> some of the feedback I heard. More Kevin. More Kevin really? asking questions. So, Kevin, uh, whether you want to start with hardballs or softballs, <laughs> you, you go right ahead. Okay. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, just for two minutes uh, to be light about this and to make some of these interviews uh, not strictly and solely on um, political views and um, – platforms and how each of these candidates seek to make our community a better place, I was going to ask about music because I learned sitting down here that Kelly and I have an interest in, in music. Peter Gabriel played at Nationwide Arena recently. I went to see the show. Kelly saw Peter Gabriel when he toured with Sting about seven or eight years ago. I hope all the listeners know Sledgehammer, so I'm not going to talk about the pop stuff. But do you, Kelly, have a view on what one of your more... Um, obscure to commercial music fans uh obscure peter gabriel song how they might view it as deep an obscure cuts. song oh deep, deep cuts, cuts deep cuts here well uh, we were mentioning before we started here you know bico bico is always a good one just the the theme of it to talking about what happened there in south africa um it's Steven great bico, yeah yeah mm -hmm. great great sound uh, he closed the show with that oh i love that one um and of course you know in your eyes you, you yeah it's commercial but you can't beat that i mean everybody knows john cusack standing there with the the boom box but sometimes uh, there are songwriting diamonds that then get hitched to a uh, very iconic imagery right, <laughs> right. and so th those are those are some great ones um a title is escaping me right now, but a, a lot of the collaboration off a of big blue ball. Uh, mm -hmm. It's that's a little more obscure for folks. So I'd, I'd encourage folks to take a listen to some of the soundtrack or some of the pieces off of that one. His pivot from uh, experimental frontman of Genesis to like a full world music embracing type of polyrhythm guy had, yeah. was was a standard '80s progression. But I think he took it about as far as you could take it. Mm. Uh, yeah. If you think about some of the other people who went through that standard 80s progression of, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this pop music 
we're moving on now <laughs> to yeah. some more experimental ground. That early 70s stuff, it, it'll blow some people's minds listening to. That's, that's the same same person. Two different bands. Uh, Two yep. different bands almost. Three I, different bands over the years. Yep. I think so, probably. I mean, I worked backwards to Peter Gabriel's earlier stuff. Um, actually, Through Shock the Monkey was the first record I remember by him. And listening to Casey Kasem countdowns, um, occasionally Casey Kasem would mention previous recordings of the artists when they were currently charting. So that's how I worked back to some other things. Um, I had hoped he would do Blood of Eden. Uh, he, did yeah. not, he did not do that in that the show. Is, that is beautiful song. Uh, beautiful. And there's a song called I Don't Remember, and he didn't mm-hmm. do that song. Uh, he did Red Rain, which I expected. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that should be called a deep cut or not. I think that's uh, it's a little more well known, but yeah. it, it didn't, that didn't chart either. Um, he did do that song. Um, so I heard a lot of that era of Peter Gabriel on like alt rock radio mm-hmm. around where I grew up. So sure. those those songs were getting out there. Red Rain, minor 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 hit from. Well, I think Peter it Gabriel. charted. Lots of people know, lots of people know <laughs> that song, but it's nobody's favorite Peter Gabriel song. It's always I number like it. seven, um, <laughs> and it always ha- plays on the radio when it's actually raining out there for me. For somehow it, uh. it just. Kind of, kind of boggles the mind. There you go. And his new material off IO, um, which is only available so far through digital downloads, uh, and these were songs I were not, I was not familiar with, but a lot of those were good. Um, so I enjoyed that um, concert. Sometimes you see a performer, and uh, they're focusing on what their new material is. Especially they're an older performer. They're they recorded new stuff, and I think some of those performers maybe don't like it when the fans are quiet or almost complaining. Hey, play your stuff from 15 or 17 years ago. Uh, but that was really good material that he has off his new album as well. Nice. You know, the Isley Brothers still play <clears throat> Shout at every concert. <laughs> they're, st- they're still on tour. They're still playing Shout. Sometimes. They actually have a great attitude about it. Yeah. Play the hits. We're all here to see you play the hits. <laughs> that's how we love you, and that's how we'd like to keep loving you. So don't make me turn this into a scene. Uh, I want to hear Shout. So uh, we have Kelly, uh, School Board Candidate. Uh, Kelly, tell us a little bit about uh, why you are seeking election and would like to uh, serve on the Hillary Board of Education. Um, well, I, I think I'm going to take you guys back a little bit, way back to growing up. I, I Most times I tell folks I'm from Gary, Indiana, uh, because that was my mailing address. But actually, I grew up in uh, unincorporated Calumet Township, sandwiched between Gary and the town of Griffith. And as a result, we had our own school district, a very tiny elementary, middle, and high school that, uh, as you can imagine, being up in northwest Indiana, Gary rose and fell with the steel mills. And it was a a school district that did not not do well, has not done well. And uh, I only attended kindergarten in the public school. Uh, My enduring memory is the teachers carried ping pong paddles, the principal carried a wooden board, and there was a kid that ran around and bit everybody. Well, Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I imagine he, you know, the ping pong paddles might have been uh, uh, deployed against that child more than others. Uh, Quite possibly, but uh, so when I was in first grade, my mother put me in the local Catholic school. We weren't Catholic. Uh, We really couldn't afford it, especially after my parents divorced. And I could see the difference in education I was receiving, even as a kid, Hmm. compared to what my peers in my neighborhood were were getting from the public school. Uh, Most of my friends were actually a year older than I, but I could see where we were already touching on subjects that they weren't. And it's, it's, it's a lesson that stuck with me in that these disparities shouldn't happen. You should be able to, everybody should be able to have a great education. Um, so, you know, fast forward to our, I mean, we're living here in Hilliard and our kids are ready, our, our oldest was ready for school. And it was a conversation that we did have because my husband also is product of Catholic schools. His mother, Catholic school teacher, his grandmother, Catholic school principal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's something we contemplated. Did we do Catholic schools? But we looked and we're, we knew from our own experience that there were things that, that, those schools couldn't deliver as well. And in the public school, there are a lot of oper- great opportunities uh, that, you know, kind of the economies of scale for public schools. And so, you know, we chose public schools for our kids because we also knew that schools are only as good as what you make them. And we knew that you need to be involved as a parent to, to make the process work, to actually deliver on that promise for your kids to help them within the schools. So 
that's that's where I started getting involved in the schools was when my oldest started. This was 20 years ago. Um, I tried to be involved in the classroom as much as I could. Back then, I also had a one-year-old at home. So help out with teachers with, you know, little packets I could put together at home, make phone calls. Eventually got more involved where I could be in the classrooms as, as my daughter got older and help with the small groups in the hallway, take them down to the computer lab, what, what, what have you, all, all through the years. And whether that was at the middle school level, helping out in the media center, helping out when they were later in band and color guard. It's, it's all about being involved and having those connections with your kids. Really, you know, you don't want to be the helicopter parent that everybody groans about, but you want to have involvement so you can have those conversations with kids to know what their day is, to know who their friends are, to know what they're doing. Yeah, those, uh, those ongoing connections make it easier as a parent uh, to provide little nudges as opposed to having large uh, explosive revelation sessions. Right. Uh, I've had my fair share of both over the years, uh, but I think that's something that people should always strive for as far as level of participation is concerned. So you have not just a familiarity with what's going on, but a facility with what what kids are talking about, how they're presenting their their challenges in school, and and that kind of common language can really help uh, kids move through the education system here in Hilliard. I think you touched on something interesting relating to maybe uh, your background and, and what drives uh, the hopes and aspirations for public schooling here in Hilliard is this concept of a full end-to-end education, uh, K-12, through a unified public school system providing not a patchwork education growing up to kids that are in and around this uh, area in this large school district, but a full uh, coverage, full spectrum education. Like you said, a lot of good opportunities in public schools. What are some of the ways that you think Hilliard schools in particular should try to stand out for future students and current students in, in making them ready for tomorrow? What are some of the ways that we can diversify and offer and upgrade the public school offering to help uh, improve outcomes? So, yeah, that's, that's something I think Hilliard schools are doing really well in terms of what they offer in possibilities. You know, you can only offer the possibilities to kids. They they have to they have to want to take those, and they have to be able to take them. So we also need to make sure we're removing barriers. But th- when we look at things in our, let's say just in our high schools, where we have the opportunity for mentorships, where we have our academy edu, where we can try and grow teachers within our system. Uh, there's partnerships with Worthington Industries to get kids out there in the field. We have, uh, of course, our partnership with Tolls that kids are going out and you know trying those career-oriented um, uh, learning experiences. So it's it's there's there's that experiential learning component of it, but it's also just opportunities within the classroom to grow and develop themselves. I will tell you. So my son it works in IT at OSU. And that was made possible by one of his teachers. She gave him opportunities in the class to actually lead conversations and discussions about Android programming, and then also helped him get into the Ohio Supercomputer Center summer program one year, where he was able to take that opportunity and really run with it. He learned a lot about networking, and that's how he originally got hired at OSU. So having those having those connections with their teachers and really being able to develop their passions and interests, I think that's something we do pretty well here. Even, even as young as the, you know, the elementary level, you have teachers who are engaging with kids to see what they want to do, what they want to be, and giving them opportunities to explore that. Hmm. I think a lot of people would agree that my concept of a, a strong educational model is kind of flowing like a river. You have a nice, consistent, heavy flowing body of knowledge and information in the early years where you're trying to master skills that make it possible to learn more complex skills and create more complex relationships between more abstract concepts as we go on and on it's just nothing but more abstractions from here on out there youngsters but as they get older and move into different uh stages of their learning and as they kind of diversify in this direction or that direction feeling drawn to a more skills oriented profession or maybe 
something more uh, science-minded or, or something that might require further education beyond even a college degree, it kind of fans out like a, a delta of a river and that there are different ways that people can find their way into the uh, daunting ocean of adulthood or what have you. Mm -hmm. But the more of those things that we can cultivate for our students, the more we can serve the full body of our students, I think. And it's not just the high-achieving learners. It's the people that are struggling to make changes, significant changes in their life. Talk a bit about uh, the role that schools play in improving people's uh, – uh, not acceptance. I'm trying. I'm searching for a word, but integration or, or or joining of a larger community. Say immigrants or people that have been uh, displaced in countries far away, coming here, finding themselves in Central Ohio. Talk a little bit about the role that public schools play in easing those transitions. Yeah. So when you're looking, you know, some people will say that schools shouldn't be the social safety net, but in many ways they are. There are a lot of services that happen through our schools that really help kids uh, find their direction. And like you said, we've when you look at Hilliard, I do believe we're representing uh, 100 and 100, 100 plus countries. It's it's escaping me right now, and 60 some odd languages that are spoken within. So that's a, it's a challenge for our schools to make sure that all those kids are getting to where they need to be as you, as you move through that river, as you put it, because it, that river meanders before it hits that delta. Oh, absolutely. And so it, it's, it's one of those opportunities for people to have cu cultural touchstones that you're experiencing the same thing maybe as a classmate, and whether that's you know, reading the same material or going on the same field trip, those are, those are moments that you can share together. And when we have shared moments that we can talk about, that, that really helps bind community. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can definitely recall uh, uh, experiences that I had that were memorable for that reason beyond others uh, that were just going to different museums, going into submarines in Pittsburgh and things mm -hmm. like that that, uh, you know, I think many, 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 many students do, but putting uh, adults and teachers and professionals in place to kind of facilitate those things and help make those experiences is pretty cool, pretty yeah. exciting. I, I will tell you, I, I can flash back to fourth grade. Uh, one of our field trips was to the steel mills, and there's, wow. there's nothing that beats. You, you're smelling that you know, molten metal. You're feeling that heat. You, can, you see the rust. Wow. You know, it's those, those moments that you just kind of impress upon you and, and stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Kelly, why don't we talk a little bit about um, your early uh, experiences in other models of education? I was fascinated by this when I found out you spent a significant amount of time in Japan studied the educational model and had some takeaways that you thought were insightful. I, I wanted to hear from you about that today. I thought that was an interesting sure. uh, an interesting window into your experience. Uh, so about, well, we were about two months into my son's second grade year. Um, my husband works for Honda Research and Development, or whatever it's called these days. They're one big happy family now. Um, and had the opportunity for a long-term overseas assignment. And the in original intent, he was going to be there for about two years. The, the kids and I were with, and I was originally going to bring them back uh, about 18 months into it so that they could start uh, the school year on time in, in August of 2007. Um, but uh, both the kids were enrolled in the local Japanese school. It was totally in Japanese. Uh, my son started about tail end of second grade there because their school year starts in April as opposed to when we start in August September and then he was there for pretty much all of third grade and then most of fourth grade there and then came back when we came back it was another half year of fourth grade here he had the longest fourth grade year of his life <laughs> um, my daughter was enrolled in the local Yochian which is directly translates into kindergarten and uh, kindergarten there is not compulsory the compulsory education mm -hmm. starts at first grade. And uh, she started, we started her a little bit later. She's a little shyer. Uh, started her when the school year started. And so they both both were able to experience the Japanese school. And it was, it's so interesting there. Um, just some of the, the differences you see in terms of 
uh, you know, the classroom buildings, even the, the, the structure of the day. When you look at, I, I do believe it was first, second, and some a third grade maybe, their school day's a little shorter. Those kids go home a little early. And then by the time you've hit fourth grade, you're there for an extra period. And at some point, you're also picking up a, kind of a required extracurricular that you're there for, say, I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays, a little bit longer. Um, my, my son has ADHD, and he was diagnosed shortly before we left. And I was, you know, it was something I was concerned about because you hear in Japan that they really don't acknowledge that. And uh, going through the process, I kind of see why that a lot of things that happen within their school day really kind of cater to kids with ADHD so that they don't maybe have some of the disruptions or problems that you might normally see with kids that experience that. Uh, textbooks are very colorful, um, so it engages. Those, there's a lot of breakup in the day with just two class periods, then a little, little recess, then back to class, um, lunch period, recess, you know, the little things like that that just made the transitions a lot smoother for him. Things that were obviously purposefully structured, but the way that they broke it up to a child's perception mm -hmm. was something else that helped in, in different ways than the right. highly systematized thing that it really is at, at its core. It, it might uh, just provide a different level of engagement for a kid. I think that's an interesting takeaway from that. Um, back here stateside, you've been uh analyzing a lot of things you spend a lot of your time analyzing a lot of things i think uh of the boards and commissions that you've served on in the past why don't you give people a brief tour through that sure um i w being engaged in the classrooms being engaged with the teachers and the students i also was very much involved with the pto um, I started going to PTOs again right from the outset just because I wanted to understand what was happening in school. Like, you know, you could see things that happen in the classroom. Well, what are the decision-making that happens at, say, the school building level or district level that affects that? And um, so I started with PTO just to kind of learn what was going on and figure out where I could help in different ways. Um, so started with PTO was membership chair, was did fundraising, and then ultimately was a treasurer. It's a job that nobody seems to want, is treasurer. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't quite understand it. Keeping I'll, your eye on the money is a very high-stakes yeah. uh, proposition. But uh, I, I love them numbers. Um, but, uh, yeah, involved in the PTO, was involved in the inner school PTO uh, as the treasurer there, and that was that job is primarily to help the other PTOs and our booster groups understand like IRS regulations, Secretary of State regulations, district regulations, um, because we're, we're volunteers and volunteers need all the support they can get to help do the jobs that they want to do. And then taking, you know, taking that on, I was also involved in a lot of district level committees and task force over the years, um, partially because I was involved in PTO. Uh, you know, what are the things that are happening at that district level that were affecting how the PTOs could do their job, how, how things happened in the classroom? So I just, it's always about learning more knowledge, it, it, gathering information and making, making decisions based on that because when you know more, you can, you can do better. I think that uh, speaks to a, a material kind of background. You have an analysis-oriented uh, perspective you recently had a Facebook post kind of discussing various population changes in school system uh, relative to population changes in city boundaries and mm -hmm. things of that nature. Uh, I wondered if you wanted to talk through that a little bit because I thought that was a really concise kind of explanation. You talk at the opening of this post about what it takes to even approach making these kind of projections that we get from uh, consultants like uh, Cooperative Strategies. Mm -hmm. um, but talk a little bit about uh, the facility plan, what role that plays, how you kind of engage with that to first start laying the groundwork for how you imagine school population to change over time. Yeah, so I've, I've been involved in this type of work since 2009 when the district first had their student housing committee. Um, back then there was a potential for a mandate of all-day kindergarten and so that kind of spurred conversations about, well, how are we going to achieve that model? Where, where are we going to house kids? Do we have the space for that? 
And then it kind of led into more conversations. It was a huge, huge working group that um, we weren't, you know, we weren't in one narrow path. We could spread out and kind of think about, well, do we look at different models? Do we look at K235, some of the campus that we see now? That, that conversation actually started back then. So I've been involved with that in the facilities task force when Memorial was being built. And now the current iteration is the master facilities planning. And that has come about to take a look at, we have a lot of buildings that are getting older. Some are really old. And how do we take care of those needs in terms of repairs, replacement, renewal of the buildings to serve all of our kids? So one of the things that they've done over the years, it's several components. Uh, the first one, uh, actually kind of hand in hand, was Amoresco is a company that they engaged to look at the actual facilities, take a look at every piece of mechanical components, and tell us what's the age of it, what's its lifespan, how you know what kind of condition it is, and where we need to be going with that. The other piece was cooperative strategies, as you mentioned, and they take a look at our enrollment projections, and we've been using them since about 2015. And their initial projections are, we're, we're a lot of census-based and taking our data from the district, but also, you know, making those analysis. But now that we've had them for so long, they are able to take, you know, that, that data that they've had for so long and look at live birth rates right now look at that cohort survival rate is what they talk about. And that's where you have, let's say we had 100 kindergartners starting one year, and then the following year we have 104 kindergartners. That's 104% survival rate. We pick up a few, or we maybe we lost a couple and picked up a few more, but in the end we have. So how that, how that works through our system, not just across the district, but at each building, and because they've been doing this so long, they really understand each of our neighborhoods. So what that single family house does, what that apartment complex, condos, all those different components to really give us a good sense of where we're going in terms of enrollment. Right. I've been going through this plan for several, or not plan, but the cooperative strategies, the final report, uh, it's 98 pages. Mm-hmm. And it's no joke, the level of granular detail that they can provide uh about single-family household makeup, mm-hmm. level of language spread across the district, populations. Uh, this is some of the most clear-cut and clean population data across all different types of body, I guess you might say. There's right. county data. There's mm-hmm. uh, city data boundaries that are very clear about what school district. I mean, helped me understand in a lot of ways um, – large population that Hilliard City School District serves, almost 100,000 comfortably at this point, growing all the time. However, I think we would all be uh, pretending we didn't know what was going on in this year's election cycle if there wasn't a significant, um, I guess, flare thrown up about population growth and potential population growth. It was recently a um, matter of public record that a proposal was put forward in Hilliard City School Board session to try to convince City Council to pause uh, all talk of development, community plan, etc., etc., until schools could have uh, uh, an evaluation. Now, I think this time compression thing is something that you understand particularly as you've looked at student demographics over the years. We do not conceive children in a village of the damned type style where the comet passes over they all come out nine months later with blonde hair and you know thousands of students all enter our school system in one uh, particular fashion place or location talk a little bit about over the course of 10 years i think you looked at in this post we added about 10,000 people to the city of hilliard's population and then as a result of that, we only added about 350 students spread across the entirety of our school system. So, now, well, Correction on that. The, the 350 is spread across just the Hilliard of, city of Hilliard component, just to, just to be clear. Um, so the just HCSD. Right. Just, okay. that, just that little portion where we're talking about that increase of city of Hilliard increasing 10 or 11,000 people, but only 350 from just that component so when we're talking of about that increase not potentially the increases that go in outside of the city boundary right so okay there could have been other increases from 
Columbus. Right, government. right, okay. right. But that was it was a it was an interesting fact that came up about two weeks ago when we were doing this two day work session. Uh, it was something that one of the presenters had raised that you know we are looking at when when you look at that data and you look at city of Hilliard, it was only about eleven thousand people in, increased over that ten year period, but only three hundred and fifty students, and that is crucial to understand of how we how kids move in and out of our system. So when you're looking at something like single-family housing, what they have found within this report is that over the course of about 35 years is that kind of maturation of, say, single-family housing. So by that point, you can pretty much gauge that 0.36 kids are going to come out of single-family housing after it hits 35 years. You hit a peak at about, say, year 8, year 9 for a lot of these if it's of like maybe one student per household at its peak year, but then it starts to age. And I can see that reflected just in my own neighborhood. I live over in Cross Creek Village, just south of Crossing. And I can recall when I was doing membership directory way back in the day here, that on one street behind me, 28 kids lived on that street alone. Uh. I'd ha- I dare say we probably have maybe seven, eight kids now on that same street. Because neighborhoods shift and change. When we moved into our house in 2000, uh, there were school-age kids in, in, right across the street, right behind us. Those kids have aged out. Yeah, Those, God, God love them, but they're not our whole lives. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they moved out. I do see the grandkids come by. It's great. But, but we're, we're staying in our homes because yeah. it's, it's difficult to find housing that's affordable to where you want to move. So those kinds of things influence how our neighborhoods flex and grow and develop, and that's reflected in this data. They can see where neighborhoods are starting to shift, because we do see that. We'll see in maybe 10 years, it could be that my neighborhood shifts again. And those are the kinds of flexes and ebbs and flows that we need to be responsive to, in addition to the new growth. But as that new growth happens, it's not happening like, like you mentioned, they're, you know, the comet's not just dropping all these kids. As those kids come in, we're going to see other kids move out. As our, as our whole area starts to age and grow, that's, what you, that's the kind of trends you see. Yeah, the population bulge in Hilliard City School Districts is in two sections, and mm-hmm. it's kind of aging through at this point. I think people are in this uh, election cycle primarily sounding an alarm and concern element about uh, severe increases in bulk over a short time window. I don't think it's as uh, dangerous as they portray because this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It requires years and years of building, years and years of permit seeking and approvals and and things like that. But let me just say, how would you go about as a school board member and as a body trying to address, say, larger changes in uh, school population. Say if we did see a sustained uh, building boom that did provide another population slug moving through the schools, how would the school board try to flex and, and adapt to that? And I think that's that's the question that we're actually answering right now with the master facilities plan. As we're looking at where we're going, what's, what's on the horizon? Even, right now, even though we're looking at flat growth, what do we do with the buildings that we have that are aging? How do we respond to those? How do we address where we have you take a look at something like Ridgewood, and you can see within that, that report, you see a huge bubble going through there, and that bubble just kind of keeps hanging on um, modulars right now at Ridgewood to help address currently, but that's also an aging building that needs some attention, too. Mm-hmm. So how do, we, how do we address some of that? And having this type of data, being able to look at the trends, being responsive to where that's where that growth is happening because it's also you got to look at the heat mapping of it too. Where does right. where is it happening? Where do we currently have buildings and how can we, you know, I hate to say it, we're going to have to say the dirty R word here, redistricting. That's mm. also a component because we can have buildings that are underutilized versus the overcapacity. So as a as a board member, you just need to take all of the data that's available, understand and have these working groups that are really, I mean, there is a lot of components to this that we have looked at and look at solutions that fit economically, but then meet the, 
the the needs of all those students so it can be through a combination of do we need to build a school or schools do we need to take schools offline do we need to remodel and do we need to redistrict or is it all of those things together and that's that's probably where we're heading is you know some combination of all of that to get us to where we need to be for the next say 10 15 years or however that might look and then we just keep a, we keep rolling with that and watching and planning yeah i think there's no final answer there no. is no, no uh one size fits all type of game plan that's going to be able to adequately anticipate any uh massive change that might take place in the future we couldn't have anticipated covid we could not have anticipated the financial crisis in 2008 uh the destabilizing effect that would have on neighborhoods long-standing communities um talk a little bit about if you don't mind um how hilliard has changed over the years that you've been here and seen it and maybe how you feel that we could uh tailor our schools to um not necessarily meld to that change, but there's been a lot of discussion of uh, diversifying the options at the end of that river delta. Like what level of uh, investment or involvement does Hilliard Public School System have in changing models for later levels of education, like high school levels? I think we've, we're already doing that. You know, when you look at our high schools and we've got things like College Credit Plus, where kids are already getting that college experience, entering college with, as sophomores. Um, I know my own kids entered with a significant number of credits. Um, the, the experiences through the ILC and the hub. And those things, a lot of people don't understand how those types of experiences at those buildings help relieve pressures on our high schools. So when you take a look at our school schedules and the master scheduling and where actual classrooms are being used, it's not as crowded in certain areas as you might think. It's when you have those common areas like, say, cafeterias and gyms that you see some of those pressures where we have, you know, students there. Um, but as, as things move forward, keeping those types of experiences going are critical for kids' experience, to, you know, looking forward to their futures, helping alleviate some of this as we look at growth and how we use our buildings, and then just keep working on those partnerships with various businesses, with the colleges, um, whether it's at Columbus State or Ohio State or any of them around here, to give opportunities and options to kids. Any programs in donut making? I could really use an apprentice or somebody <laughs> that's going to help me help. Oh, my goodness. Guys, well, did either of you have any uh, questions you wanted to toss in? Right now I feel as though I've monopolized quite a bit of this middle portion here. Uh, I think, Kevin, did you have anything that you wanted to get into? I do, or I have a question um, prefaced by a statement. Um <laughs> I think it can be said that in Hilliard or any community, there should be um, some collaboration between that community school board, a city council, township trustee, chamber of commerce, and, and mm-hmm. maybe even some other entities. Having said that, each, I believe, also have a distinct responsibility. In the case of the school district, um, academically, through its curriculum, to make every student ready for tomorrow, financially, to protect the taxpayer dollars, uh, transportation, food service, so many things. Mm-hmm. What is your approach to, what would be your approach to maintain collaboration, but also see to it that the school district's goals, objectives, responsibilities that they need to carry out are are met, are, are executed? I think it's a matter of just constant information flow of understanding what is coming up on the horizon what things do say city council members know or uh, other other pieces city staff know in these arenas that maybe schools should know like do we do we have permits coming through that are showing oh we are going to build an apartment complex here getting that information to the schools so that they know it that's that's great and helpful because then it's again a function of planning having those collaborations in terms of what opportunities are available you know the chamber of commerce being able to facilitate between businesses there are just 
it's always about information flow and making sure that that voice is being heard within any of these arenas. Um, as an area commissioner, one of the things that we've had, you know, always difficulty, I think, is with Columbus City Council making inroads of collaboration and communication there as well. And I think we're, we're, we're getting there. We have a great neighborhood liaison that helps facilitate those conversations with staff for us as a commission. And then making those connections with Columbus City Council so that we can have conversations about what is happening out here. Um, and then taking, you know, those are the things as a commissioner, I have conversations with the schools so that they know what's on the horizon. And, you know, if they have, is there something that I should know from the school district side that I can relay back in terms of the city? It's just, it's always just about conversations. It's not about dictating. It's, it's about just understanding where everybody's coming from and what those what those inputs are yeah the building blocks and what they add up to Mm -hmm. uh between all these various entities that share the responsibility but have distinct responsibilities um that said tim did you have anything you wanted to get into you've got two of these kids going through hilliard city schools right now talk to us i've got a couple (laughs) questions for you sure um it's it seems like you are you are so in involved in the district already what changes for you uh if you get a seat on the board of education i think there are sometimes conversations that happen behind the closed doors that Mm -hmm. we don't always hear of in the community because for whatever reason sometimes those are whether there's land deals that are happening in executive session in terms of you know community reinvestment or tiffs or anything like that having having conversations about those things you know just what are the the little pieces and parts that don't always make it out into the public sphere that i typically see or you know have uh, are able to talk about with with administrators or teachers or other parents so i think having a seat on the board just takes it to that next level and if you more information more information more, more yeah it's it and it's that's what it's always been about you know being involved in the classroom being involved in the pto being involved at the district level just layering those pieces together to create understanding and create you know information flow you seem like your involvement is one thing but you also seem to be like a uh, like really interested in information mm-hmm. numbers use the term inputs mm-hmm. what do you think are some uh, maybe overlooked inputs when you're making policy and doing things all right we got to pay attention to this 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 and this what would in your opinion what do you think are some uh, underrated inputs oh it, it depends on which kind of side of there there's i think two conversations really that go on in the schools you know i've I've talked about facilities because i've really been engaged in the facilities processes a lot Mm -hmm. um so when we're looking at facilities whether we're looking at utilization whether we're looking at that educational adequacy that's a new component that has been evaluated um whether it's that enrollment piece whether it's how well the building itself is just holding up you know all those little pieces all those inputs have to be taken together and then what is the magic formula to make that decision how much do you weigh each component and that's the hard work Mm -hmm. where what what is the biggest factor to ultimately produce the best outcome for our kids and then when you look at something like the academic side of it we hear a lot about the state report cards because that's the the one that gets a lot of attention a lot of folks don't make it to our school board meetings for a variety of reasons people are busy i get it i've been going to these for 10 years straight and it, one, it's hard a lot of times there's no guarantee of what kind of quote unquote show you're going to get at any given school yeah, board well, meeting and I, I would tell you the the, the the show as you put it for the past uh let's say two plus years starting with COVID, is vastly different than what i've experienced in the seven years prior um but one of the things that you don't see is people coming out to those board meetings and catching some of the, the detailed reporting that you get at some of those meetings. When you look at the school, the, the state report cards, 
the, the underlying data that's presented by, uh, in this case, Molly Walker's been, been giving those types of uh, presentations and talking about what our district looks at in terms of STAR data, that's, those are the tests that kids take three times a year that they use as a formative assessment so that teachers know where these kids are when they're starting the year and then how they're progressing at points through the year. And seeing that type of data as, a, as an input and all those little, little different surveys and different data points that the district collects beyond, say, state report cards, I think those get lost in the equation. And then how much do you weigh each of those? And how do you communicate that to the general public as well? There, there are so many different ways that we serve kids in terms of academics that don't get captured by a lot of the conversation in the community. As I, as I mentioned with my son with computer science, where do we show that, that test score? Where do we show that type of opportunity that's led to a very good career and job for him? It's, it's hard to capture all the inputs that really go into our district to communicate with our community and give them a better understanding. So that's something I would like to try and focus on is other ways of, you know, we, we, there's a lot of things that come out, whether on social media or via email from the schools, highlighting some of these components. But then where do you go to see maybe it put all together? And I know for years, Paul Lambert talked about a dashboard. And I think we need to you know, have that conversation. What is that dashboard? What is meaningful to our community that they want to see in that type of dashboard so that they can understand some of where we're going? Yeah, I, I think the last... 30 to 40 years of the education uh, evolution in America has been how do we measure, what do we measure, and how do we show mm -hmm. uh, those results. I, I wanted to get your feedback a little bit on some of the, the ways I think we may have gone wrong in education and provably wrong is that um, the Gates Foundation uh, put a ton of money, half a billion dollars uh, direct investment, and over a billion dollars uh, to kind of change the flow of that education river around uh, teacher assessments. And those uh, investments and those changes, which permeated and flowed through uh, the entirety of the nation's school systems in some way, shape, or form, some got picked up, some useful tools came out of that, some didn't. How do you feel uh, teacher assessment and teacher uh, recruiting play a role in improving and uh, delivering for Hilliard City students and schools? Teacher assessments, I, I don't know that I can really speak to that very well. That's just not my area of expertise. Um, but I will say I know looking at what I've seen, it's, it's very limited in what they're really assessed on. You know, it might be a walkthrough to, or walkthrough or two here or there, and I don't know that it always captures what some of these teachers do in their classrooms in terms of, you know, how they're engaging every, every child in that class. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of formulaic and a rubric, and I don't know that we're capturing that kind of information. Um, in terms of recruitment, though, uh, that's where we need, we've, we've got more work to do. Uh, one of the, you know, been out knocking doors, and one of the comments just the other day was, we need more diversity. And I said, amen, yes, we do. Um, we need, to, our, our district has changed. 20 years ago, 85.5% of our kids, I think, were white. I think that number is now 67%, somewhere in there. And our, our teacher component hasn't necessarily kept up with that so the, teach, so the kids can see themselves reflected in the teachers around them. And so it, and I know it's something our district is working on and trying hard, but it's a challenge to, especially, you know, in the current climate where teachers are not given the, 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 the due credit that they should get. I think uh, we're seeing a wave across the country of unionization uh, efforts, union power. There's currently negotiations going on between all three major car companies and the United Auto Workers. There's recently settled the writer's strike in a creative enterprise, and they're probably going to settle the actor's strike here fairly soon. Again, a creative branch. So in as diverse a profession base as all that, you're seeing kind of the power and role of unions. The union wave, in some ways, got its start with certain uh, teachers' union strikes 
took place in West Virginia, took place in various areas around Ohio. Uh, the Hilliard teachers recently earned a new contract. Mm -hmm. What role do you think unions play in creating a strong or uh, susceptible employment base for teachers? How do you think that they should move forward uh, to face tomorrow's challenges here and nationally maybe? Uh, I, th I think the unions, it's it's one of those where they're getting a lot of heat because the it, they get picked on as a kind of this, well, the union says this. Unions are people. Correct. And that's what I think a lot of people forget out there is that it's, it's a coming together. It's a collective of people who have a, a shared goal, a shared vision. And it's it's about and a shared responsibility, right? And protecting the interests of their members, which is to uh, collaborate for good wages, good benefits, good working conditions. And so, you know, you as as a school board member, you don't begrudge them that. You want them to to do that because you want to create an atmosphere where people are successful, for people are happy in their job. Yeah, growing so, in a career. Growing in a career so that they can, you know, if they're if they're doing if they're feeling like they're part of the community and part of that that school, they're going to do better. And um and but again, school boards aren't always going to want to do everything that a union says because they also are responsible to taxpayers. And so it's again, it's always about finding that balance. What is the what is the secret formula to, you know, Find find the balance of what they need, but at the same time, keeping what you need for the community. Yeah, the collaboration that leads to a, a meaningful synthesis, you know, that tough right. grind sometimes, the smooth process other right. times, but uh, abandoning those mechanisms, abandoning those ideas uh, would not be additive, and I think uh, sticking to it is the way to go. Uh, I thought maybe we would talk about uh, the discussion around school resource officers. I okay. thought it might be interesting to mention that because that was a, a point that uh, Councilperson Carrier made, and he thought that uh, in one of the ways that schools and city uh, interface, he feels that there's a responsibility of the city who has the budget control for public safety, uh, $12 million something uh, dollars, and wanted to place additional officers based on, I think, uh, a recent video of a fight that came out that seemed a little extra and a little out of control for several minutes. And then just a general sense that things are tough, things are toughening, uh, some more resources might be needed. Where do you fall on the use of uh, school resource officers and an enhanced presence in our schools? Well, you know, taking a look at where we are with our current resource officers, I'd, I'd have to question, is that something our school district actually is asking for? I, that's the first question. Um, Councilman Carrier certainly has his opinions, uh, but I would ask the people on the ground in our schools, is that what they need, or are there other supports that are more effective for them to help kids so that we don't end up with fights? Um, you know, fights happen. Sometimes you know about them because they're on social media. Other times they happen... I've been there for one, seen it, felt it, um, but it's, you know, that's something to ask the people, the boots on the ground are the, the people you need to be talking to, and that's where our conversation, the, the administration's going to be having the conversation with their people in the buildings. Is that something that they really need or want, or is it better supports in terms of, you know, uh, counselors or other other types of mentors that can help kids? It Again, I don't know that answer, and that's that's the question for the professionals in the schools to be answering. I think Kevin actually has some personal experience with this, as he's been brought in as a substitute over various districts I've and heard. everything. He's often been brought in in these support capacities, in diversionary practices in some ways, and and talk about a little bit about bringing kids in and out of tough situations and in, in their classrooms and things of that nature. Isn't that what you were working with in a, a district a couple weeks ago? I have a service intervention specialist. Um, Thank you, in intervention some specialist. Other districts. Uh, some of that is for academic reasons, uh, and I'm not too comfortable speaking in too much detail on this. Sure, no, don't right. don't but, go over any the, lines that you students, feel for yourself. Uh, the students that um, I work with um, are are getting additional uh, education, additional individual attention from the 
from the specialists in those districts. Um, so my understanding is for academic reasons, sometimes behavioral reasons, sometimes they, they've been identified as needing additional help for any number of reasons. Mm. Um, the question I was going to pose to Kelly is, um, and, and again, and she partly already answered it, and again, as preface was somewhat of a statement, uh, I think, or I believe as a parent like you are, Tim, that uh, the job of making a good student begins at home with a parent. And I think only so much, uh, and what happens in school and the behaviors that are sometimes demonstrated, and I want to move this towards the towards where it began with Councilman Carrier's uh, suggestion, hey, we need, we need SROs because this fight occurred. I wanted to preface my question with, it starts at home with the parents, the behavior they mm -hmm. see um, at home or what they're taught at home is sometimes behavior they carry out in the hallways. A absolutely. So and, is yeah. the answer necessarily, we need more SROs? I don't know if the presence of SROs is going to, I don't think it will stop that fight from happening. You'll have more officers there to respond to that when it happens. Right. How many more are needed? Um, and that was the same question you asked. Uh, and, and, and your reply was, we need to find that out from the people in the schools. Yeah, right. and, and I know um, when we look at those types of interventions that we have, whether they're, whether they're for behavior or academics, you know, how many do we have? Do we have enough? Do we have the resources for those folks to to handle some of those kids that come to us for whatever reason? And, you know, yes, it is. It's a matter of what they hear at home, what they experience at home. And we don't always know what that is. And sometimes it's it's a, it's heartbreaking. You could have parents who who didn't learn any better themselves. You know, we do have generational trauma. And how, the, how we respond to those kids, it, it always has to be with love and empathy. And we want to make sure that they have the support. So it's not just about supporting the kids in the school. One of the things, you know, talking about is what kind of needs and outreach do we have with those parents so that they have that understanding of where their kids are and then how, did, how to help them respond better. Because mm -hmm. if, you, if you as a parent didn't learn yourself how to behave in those, how do you, how do you correct that? Mm. You, you also need some outreach to parents to, this is what we're seeing and this is why this isn't working. Yeah. And understanding where those parents maybe are coming from too. It's, it's all about creating community of empathy and understanding and working through those issues that way. Yeah. I'm glad to see that Hilliard has these resources that in other school districts. Uh, we started the show off mentioning how schools have changed over a generation, mm -hmm. over my generation and your generation. I went through Hilliard City Schools. Um, I, I, and I saw this um, through, through my son as well. Um, the, the support that's out there, um, the counselors, um, that didn't exist um, when we went to school. Right. Um, so I am glad to see those are there. I mean, my, my, uh, my father passed when I was in the fifth grade and certainly there was human sympathy offered but there was not the network of support that would exist for a child today whose yeah whose parent yeah. Um, passed when they were like were in elementary school that didn't that mm -hmm. didn't exist and that that network is there um, that network is there now and, and I feel that you know I, I mentioned my parents divorced my parents divorced when I was 10 um, my father lived. I was ten years old when my father. Yeah, died. you and I have similarish experience. My father lived all the way in California, and I was in Indiana. So, you know, having father figures via some of our some of my teachers was was critical, and uh, I can still Mr. V in seventh and eighth grade. Such you know, these are the people that touch you that you remember those names yeah. down the road. And I that, know every name of my um, yeah. elementary school teacher. And it and it dawned on me much later, or I came to realize much later that uh, and this was in 1980, so there wasn't the type of network of support that exists mm -hmm. now to provide to a student. Mm -hmm. Also to the staff members. Right. Because I, uh, my fifth grade teacher was um, Stephen Seal was his name. And he went on to be a principal at Hillary Elementary for a couple of years and then wound up going to the Buckeye Boys Ranch and working there. Um, he passed, you know, 1990 maybe. I was at Ohio State and I went to the funeral. And uh, his 
wife didn't recognize who I was. And I explained, well, when your teacher, when your husband was a teacher at Beacon, you had a kid in the fifth grade. That's as far as I got. And, mm-hmm. and she, that, that was you. And, and uh, she shared that he is a teacher. You know, they didn't tell me what to do when I went to get my educator's license. Right. They taught me how to do math, how to teach other children, but they didn't tell me how to provide or what mm-hmm. to do if a student's father dies. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's those supports for me. kids. And it's also support for our teachers, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, they're humans. That's, that's the essential equation that most, most people are forgetting. Humans are involved all around. It's a complicated, world. interconnected network of these relationships that's woven through the most important thing in most of our lives, which is our children's growing up. Right. And uh, the synthesis of services it provides, you can't even really comprehend. I mean, as they're talking about uh, child care costs topping $12,000 per kid, uh, the idea that public school exists meaningfully to do this whole entire quilt of services from feeding kids to teaching kids to being there for kids when tragedy happens, uh, it's a true testament to what I want to call American spirit. I think that's not uh, overhyped in any way. I think public education has been one of our uh, boldest experiments and strongest uh, deliverers of prosperity. And uh, I think that how you go about delivering that service and that that benefit to every U.S. citizen is always up for discussion Mm -hmm. and up for reappraisal and and figuring out where the benefits really are and and how you can best deliver those. And sometimes there are fights you can't win uh, right then, but you don't look away from those situations that are difficult. And I think that's a teacher's uh, primary responsibility to teach through almost anything. Um, I wanted to mention quickly, too, in that complicated nexus of supports and uh, as City of Hilliard is uh, home to the school district, which serves a larger population. What's mm-hmm. the overall population of the schools? It's fifth in the bi- fifth biggest school district uh, in the state. We're at 16,000. We're at 16,330 was the last enrollment report. Um, seventh or eighth, I think. In the yeah, state. about eighth, I think, is the yeah. current. Um, Huge school district. Biggest a, employer. Yeah. Uh, most complicated uh, logistics and balancing. Uh, complete data study of all local demographics. I mean, dedicated to one of the most challenging missions in America. I got to say, I would like to see a little more spending in the city's public health budget because a lot of people will say, show me your budget. Every school district can show every bit of its budget uh, and how much of it goes into sustaining kids and their overall health conditions. I think uh, as much as the city feels a responsibility to provide enhanced police services, I think they should also provide enhanced public health benefits to try to fill some of those gaps that teachers and students face every day, whether it's good nutrition at home or uh, a network for after-school supports that exists within our community. I think that could be bolstered by a stronger public health budget. How do you feel about uh, the level of spending on the public health budget in the city of Hilliard? Well, I won't touch the city of Hilliard one because I have not looked at their budget spending, but I will say, you know, being a Columbus area commissioner, uh, one of the things I've been completely harping on Columbus is that engagement with what they, you know, the suburbs, you know, we have a significant portion of this, the students that are in Hilliard city schools, uh, about 45% are Columbus residents and they are fairly well forgotten about by Columbus in many respects. We don't have many services out here for those kids. Um, that there's that, as our area commission chair has mentioned, the, the force field that is 270 somehow prevents mm. that kind of engagement out here. Uh, you take a look at Columbus has a partnership with Columbus State uh, called the Columbus Promise, where kids who go to Columbus City Schools and graduate can go to Columbus State tuition-free. But that's only for Columbus City School students. We have Columbus resident kids out here who don't receive that Columbus Promise, and that's mm. unacceptable to me. Oh, absolutely, because they're going through Hilliard City Schools, and those right. are the toughest schools around, man. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those where we need all of our jurisdictions to step up in how we deliver services to kids yeah, don't and, leave holes in that quilt yeah it's 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 one of those that uh everybody needs to be working together on the same page otherwise we're just not going to serve all those kids 
and all the needs and whether that's through better transportation you know to be able to get to places there are some great programs that i've seen through columbus uh various rec centers our Mm. kids can't get there Mm. um but if they try and do things through hilliard rec center it costs more because they're not hilliard residents so it's that that push pull i don't expect hilliard residents to necessarily pay for those kids but at the same time, we're not getting Columbus to step up and make sure that they have services out here, too. So that's, it's something that every time we have the ear of our city council people when they come out or have opportunities through various networking events that we have as commissioners, that's something I'm always pushing at to, to make sure that that happens for our kiddos. Yeah, got to honor those promises. Can't just ignore uh, fringe, fringe groups and right. populations. No, right. not the rule of public school. So that's been about 50 solid minutes of conversation. Your voice wow. has held up very well, Kelly. Yeah, the apologies to everyone for my allergy-tinged voice. Thank you, Fall. I appreciate that. Well, the turning of the seasons is one of the few things we tend to hold on to here oh, in Ohio. I think it's, uh, I think it's one of the, the few benefits that we really enjoy. The yeah. two days of fall and the two days of spring, <laughs> the nine weeks of summer, and then the rest, you know, guys, winter. But... Uh, Absent anything else from our panel of esteemed colleagues, Tim, Kevin, anything to conclude with? I do not. Let's say work back to our Peter Gabriel start somehow, but I haven't figured maybe that we'll, out. Maybe we'll maybe we'll plug in some uh, Peter Gabriel on the outro music just for fun this time. That'd be but fabulous. Uh, thank you very much, Kelly, for participating. I want to say thank you again to uh, other guests. Sorry. Yeah, license. Well, we keep it under fifteen seconds, okay. and they can't get there you. We go. All right. uh, but. <laughs> I would just want to say thank you to Kelly here for coming out and participating in our first year of coverage of local elections. We're trying to get through all the different levels of public service, and I think uh, what's come through most to me in this interview is uh, the idea that, one, to go into public service is is one of our highest callings, and two, to do it in a way uh, that can be considered with integrity is not only the job of a candidate, but it's also the job of the system. Uh, you have to go into these things of school board uh, with the kind of clarity and credibility that uh, the situation requires. And uh, what happens afterwards, serving with integrity, is largely a result of how strongly you engage with what's there now. So, uh, Kelly, I want to say thank you. I want to wish you luck going into your potential service on Hilliard City School Board. And also, uh, maybe we'll have you back in the future to talk about other education matters and uh, we'll see you on the other side of things. But for the rest of us, I would like to say uh, thank you to our subscribers. And if you could, uh, like, subscribe, and share these interviews, we would really appreciate it. We're trying to, again, get through all candidates this year and make sure that you have as much information as possible when you head to the voting booth. So instead of blabbering on anymore, I'm going to say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.